Once again, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the 8th chapter of Luke as we continue on through this rich and incredible gospel that we've been going through. We started in January of 2014, and we are trucking on through Luke's gospel at breakneck paces. (laughs) So, hang on, Uh, we're doing just three verses this morning, but uh, last week we kind of began by starting to look how Jesus started teaching in parables, and one of the more familiar parables uh, that we've, we know of in Scripture, and that is the parable of the soils, or some people will call the parable of the sower. And truly, I hope as you read and you studied that last week, you should have done so very carefully. You should have done so very circumspectly, because those four soils uh, actually in that parable represent the four different types of hearts. And just as those variety of hearts uh, were found and present in the hearing of Jesus' listeners actual when he was actually speaking and teaching them, those types of hearts are actually still present today some 2,000 years later. In fact, they're probably represented in this room here today. But as you read that parable and heard that parable, your ears should have perked up just a little bit. Because it has everything to do with you, just as it did the crowd there in the first century. And if there ever has to be a more convincing proof that the Bible is still relevant for today, that it is still practical, it is just that very fact. It accurately diagnoses the human heart. It it still has meaning and it still has relevancy today because we see day in and day out the depravity of man and the hopelessness of man and the lostness of man and the greed of man and the pride of man, don't we? We see those things as a practical reality today. But when we get down to brass tacks, when the rubber sort of hits the road, if you will, we see that the Bible is relevant for today when we examine our own hearts when we look at our sinfulness and our affections, and we would, when we do that, we should be in absolute full agreement with Paul, who said in Romans 7.24, when he said, Wretched man that I am! Exclamation point. And so as you read that parable, you should have said to yourself, This concerns me. This concerns my heart. This concerns my response to the truth of the gospel? Am I hard-hearted towards the gospel? Am I more concerned with the cares of this world and spend more time cultivating my own personal wealth and success than I am from harvesting the truths that are found in God's holy word? Did I once have a zeal for God and say I was a Christian and may have even been baptized, but when the hardships and the trials have come, I no longer want to be identified as a follower of Christ. Or, am I persevering through life's trials and clinging to God in the process? Am I seeing the fruits of the Spirit being manifested in my life? Am I, like Paul, who realizes that I am indeed a wretched man from Romans 7.24, but I can rejoice with him in Romans 7.25 and answer that question of who will set me free? from the body of this death, and I can confidently say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, exclamation point. We're all in that parable somewhere. 
And we should have been asking ourselves some very serious and very sobering questions. Do I have a hard heart? Or do I have a shallow heart or an invested heart even? Or do I have a good heart that not only hears the word of God, and I hold fast to it, but I bear fruit with it as well? Are you that kind of person this morning? Well, let's look at our text and read it this morning and continue on in Luke chapter 8. We read from verses 16 through 18 and see what else Jesus has to say about this. So if you're there in Luke chapter 8, verses 16 through 18, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Just three verses this morning. Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 16, God's Word says this, Now no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So take care how you listen, for whoever has to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the truths the divine truths that we find in it. Lord, help us this morning not only to hear the word, but to do the word. Help us to look to only the finished work of Christ on the cross and not the works that we do for our salvation. God, we do thank you for this time. and just pray our minds would be sharpened, our hearts would be soft, and that we would go forth from here in confidence in your holy word. Help us to apply it this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as uh, Steve mentioned last week, chapter 8 of Luke was kind of a transition in the ministry and teaching of Jesus Christ. And how so? Well, because he started teaching the people more and more by way of a parable. And we said that parables were just sort of like an earthly comparison used to demonstrate a spiritual reality. They're a means to take something familiar to us and material and to illustrate something spiritual. It it literally means, the word parable means to put something alongside one another for comparison's sake. Most of you have heard of parallel lines, uh, much like that of a set of train tracks that run side by side. This is the same concept, and this usually uses a short story that teaches a moral or spiritual lesson of some sort and and combines them together with something familiar that we know of. But unlike the set of train tracks that may never connect, the parables of Jesus are designed to be connected by pulling those two realities together. Earthly examples were used to connect with divine truths. We have a perfect example of that in the Old Testament. For example, we see Nathan, the prophet, used a parable when he came before an unsuspecting King David and told him a seemingly harmless story about a rich man who owned many flocks and a poor man who only owned a ewe lamb in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And when the rich man had guests to serve, he seized the poor man's single lamb 
for dinner. Now, when David heard this story, he was morally outraged as even the thought of such a thing happening. But then Nathan connected the dots for David. And he applied that parable to David's affair and adultery with Bathsheba. And it broke down David's self-deception. So although that was a parabolic story, it was used to bring together the divine truth of David's hypocrisy. But Jesus was certainly masterful at using parables, so much so that his use of parables is even used in our culture today. For example, in the state of Ohio today, we have Good Samaritan laws, which are based off of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Wayward children are sometimes identified as prodigals from the parable of the prodigal son. And someone who builds a house upon the sand is still a foolish man. But we must not look at these parables as quaint little stories that Jesus told and then do nothing with them. They weren't meant to be just read and then thought of as a cool saying of Jesus that only applied to the first century listeners. But like everything that we take in from God's word, it's not only meant to be read and understood, but it's to be applied. The head has to meet the heart. Now, why parables? Why would Jesus start teaching the people in parables? Well, if you listen to some of the modern-day theologians, they might tell you that the reason Jesus started teaching in parables is because he realized that his Old Testament exegesis and his more direct and blunt approach just wasn't working. He had to change his method. His shock and awe miracles, they just weren't producing the effect that he wanted. His straightforward doctrinal and theological preaching wasn't having the desired effect, and so he had to turn to stories in order to more directly connect with his audience. I mean, everybody loves stories, right? Even all of us in kindergarten loved story time, right? So why shouldn't Jesus start to tell stories? Well, in fact, if you would listen to some of the so-called preaching in the churches today, even in our area you would find that they are more filled with stories than they are with biblical truth. And preaching has now just become this sequence of interrelated stories that generate a sentimentality towards Jesus and not necessarily submission to a sovereign king. Many of you have probably been to churches like that where you may have brought the Bible out of your pew, opened it up, read the the verse, and then put it away. Or maybe you had that verse up on the screen for you, flashed on the video screen, and then never to be seen or referenced again because it would get in the way of the pastor's great stories that he has to tell. Expositors of biblical truth have been replaced with storytellers. One of my wife and I's uh, former pastor's solution to revitalize his church at one time was to train people to be storytellers. Let's all sit around and tell Bible stories. But did Jesus really start teaching parables and teaching in those and stories in order to try to connect with those people? Was it a sort of a new outreach program that he was trying to do in order to gather in some new disciples? Well, we got our answer to that question back in verse 9 when he said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. 
The corollary passage in Matthew 13, 11 says, To you has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Did you hear that? Parables aren't used to help them understand. What he's basically saying is that they, meaning the crowds and the Pharisees that are following him, have not been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. So I'm going to start teaching them in parables so that they don't understand. This was not an outreach program for Jesus. This wasn't a church revitalization strategy for him. This was judgment. It was judgment on willfully hardened and unrepentant hearts. Now, as I mentioned to you before in the New American Standard, when you see those words capitalized in our text, it means that it's a quotation from the Old Testament. In this case, it's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 5, severe judgment is coming against Judah in the form of the Babylonians who would destroy Judah's cities. Remember, the northern tribes were destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., The Babylonians came and destroyed the rest of Israel and Judah in 586. And they came to massacre people, destroy the temple, and then haul away some of their people into captivity. It was judgment. And so Isaiah knows this, and he has this vision from God, right? And he sees this angel around the throne of God. He sees the foundations of the thresholds tremble at the word of God, so much so that the foundations know, they have the right sense that when God speaks inanimate objects, they shake. And they go around the Lord crying out, holy, holy, holy. Remember that? And he rightly and completely feels totally inadequate as Isaiah stands there and he sees this and he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And so in his visions, the angels, they take burning coals with a tong and they come over and cleanse Isaiah's lips and purify him. Then the Lord asks and says, who will go? Whom shall I send? And Isaiah steps up to the plate and he says, here I am. And so the Lord says to Isaiah, all right, I want you to go preach judgment. Preach judgment to them. And this is what I want you to tell them. He says, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. So basically, Isaiah, God is telling Isaiah to go preach judgment. Judgment is coming. Isaiah would be the instrument and proclaiming God's judgment on willfully hardened hearts. How hard were they? How hard were the hearts of these people? They were consumed with worldly materialism and excessive drunkenness. They rejected and ridiculed the prophets of God. They called evil good, and they called good evil, redefining moral distinctions. They were prideful and arrogant, setting themselves up and above God. They bribed judges, and they skewed the justice in the land. And they, last but not least, they despised the word of the Lord, of the Holy One of Israel. And that sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? We're seeing that happen in America. But this is exactly the same reason that Jesus is now speaking in parables. This was judgment. It's interesting to note that you'll never find anyone in the New Testament teaching 
in a parable besides Jesus. Why? Because it was a means of judgment. Peter never taught in a parable. Paul never taught in a parable, even when he'd go into the, any, any of the cities that he would go to. But only Jesus ever taught in parables. And you only find them in the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're not found in John. And they are confined only to the ministry of Jesus because they were, in fact, a means of judgment. Now, as we look at the various parables, we need to understand as we go through these that they generally fall under the bounds of soteriology. That is to say, they have to do with issues of salvation. They explain the theology of salvation in one way or another. They're not stories that we can tell to say that Jesus was so clever or basically tried to create some allegorical illustration for each little aspect of the story. But they have a gospel correlation, or they deal in the sphere of the theology of salvation. And that is certainly true from our text last week and into this week. If you'll remember from last week, we started off with the parable of the soils. And the good soil is that of a heart that hears the word of God. And it holds fast to the word of God. And then it bears fruit as a heart is remade by Jesus Christ. And this is a salvific event, is it not? Those who truly are saved will bear what? They'll bear fruit, right? Matthew 7 says that you will know the truly saved, the truly converted by their fruit. If there's no fruit, there's no root. But then Jesus continues on in our text this morning by giving us a couple of supporting parables about the truly saved. One of the ones we're going to look at next week. But the first aspect of receiving divine truth is found in verse 16 when it says, Now no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. Now, some commentaries try to make this a corollary about Jesus' own teaching because of what Luke has already said about Jesus beating the light of revelation to the Gentiles. Remember that back in Luke chapter 2. But it seems more reasonable to understand this as a parable about the disciples shining their light of the gospel to those around them. They weren't supposed to just take in the gospel and then keep it to themselves. And I think it's further supported by the fact that he had just told them that they were granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom, while the others were not. And so in order to make sure that we stave off from any forms of arrogance or pride or judgment by these disciples, he uses this parable to tell them that they are to be like lamps that shine forth their light. Now as we look at this parable... It's very simple to understand and that the parable of the light and the purpose of that lamp is to give off light. And Jesus demonstrated how absurd it would be to light a lamp for the purpose of giving off light and then covering it with either a container or a bed. It's not something someone would do. No one lights it and puts it in a container and restricts that light from its intended purpose you would actually do just the opposite and you would put it on a lampstand or some sort of wall shelf in order to illuminate the room. And similarly, no one would light a lamp and then throw a bed on top of it. You would smother the light. 
you would kill the light. Beds, by the way, weren't raised up off the ground like we have today, which you would be familiar with, but they were more like a mat or a carpet that you would roll out and roll out onto the ground. So if you're the fifth kid in a four-bedroom hotel and you're sleeping on the floor, that's the same concept, right? So throwing one of those on top of a lamp would smother the flame and kill the light as well. But what Jesus is teaching here is that those who hear the word, those who receive the word, are not just to keep the word all to themselves. Just like the lamp is to be lit and put to good use, so should the disciples put the gospel to good use. It's not merely to just resonate in their minds, but it should be heard from their tongues and it should be seen by their lives to those around them. James puts a, a bit of an edge on this concept in James 1.21 and 22 when he says, Therefore, put aside, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to to save your soul. So right there you have kind of a corollary to that good soils, right? The word is received and implanted. And then in verse 22 of James 1 he says, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Someone who merely hears the word, hears the implanted word of God and then does absolutely nothing with it, James says, you're deluded. You're misguided. You've, you've made a great spiritual miscalculation. If you think that you can hear the word of God and then do absolutely nothing with it. Richard Baxter said, there must be inward practice by meditation, but there also must be outward practice by true obedience. It's not an either or, but it's a both. Philip Graham Ryken in his commentary, and Luke said this about being a light before men, by using the truth we know from Scripture, he said, quote, We can make use of the law by confessing our sins. We can make use of the gospel by trusting in Jesus Christ. We can make use of the doctrine of election by living in humility and remembering that there is nothing in us to deserve God's grace. We make use of the doctrine of justification by living free from attempting to improve our standing with God resting instead on the finished work of Jesus Christ. We make use of the doctrine of sanctification by growing in practical holiness, learning to live with charity and purity and generosity that Jesus showed us with his example. And we make use of the doctrine of perseverance by remaining steadfast under trial. And we make use of the doctrine of glorification by waiting in hope for Christ's return. End quote. But hearing the word of God and agreeing with the word of God must be coupled with doing the word of God. You must let your light so shine before men and not keep it to yourself. Do you know someone that needs to hear the gospel that you've been reluctant to share with? Do you know someone who you've done wrong to and you need to seek their forgiveness? Have you sinned against someone and you need to confess a wrongdoing? Is there a gift that you've wanted to give to somebody, but you just haven't done it? Is there something that God has called you to do, but you've been hesitant to follow it? How ready are you to engage the millions of people who walk around in darkness with the light of the gospel? 
No light was ever meant to be hidden away and used for oneself, just as the gospel that you received was not to be meant to be kept away and hidden for oneself. So the first aspect, we have three aspects of divine truth this morning, and the first one is that it is to be used. We are to use it. The second thing that we see in our text is in verse 17. Verse 17 says, For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Now, as I've read through the various commentaries on this particular verse, there's one thing that they all agree on, and that this is a difficult verse, and there are various understandings of it. In fact, one commentary I've got didn't even attempt to touch it, just skipped right over it. Some say that he's talking about a full and complete revelation of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. But I think it's safe to say that the most practical sense and understanding is that this is saying to us that eventually the real truth will always come out. In a universe that is governed by an all-seeing and an all-knowing God, eventually everything will come out and everything will not be hidden forever. Ecclesiastes 12:14 it says for God will bring every act to judgment everything which is hidden whether it is good or evil. Moses the psalm Moses' psalm in Psalm 90 verse 8 says you have placed our iniquities before you our secret sins in the light of your presence. Paul even spoke of a day in Romans 2:16 when he said on the day when according to my gospel God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. And so as we look at these two verses together, I think this is a stern warning for all of us. Light not only illuminates, but light also exposes. There's been a couple of times when I used to work for my father-in-law that I got the cheapest hotel that I could possibly get. And I opened the door and I turned on that light And when it exposed everything in that room, I turned off that light and I closed that door and I went and found another hotel. Because light exposes everything when it's turned on. But we need to be very careful in how we respond to God's word. Because if we think that we can just receive the gospel and understand the gospel and just somehow keep it in isolation from everyone else and then cover it under a basket or throw a bed on top of it, one of these days, is, there's going to be final judgment. You might very well start looking for a gospel within yourself at that time, and you may never find it. But this is a huge problem in America. How many times have you heard someone say that all I need is me, Jesus, and the Bible? I don't need church. In fact, I don't even go to church because the church is full of hypocrites. All the while, they never look at their own hearts. They never look introspectively and seeing how hypocritical they can be themselves. But the Christian life was never meant to be lived in isolation. It was never meant to be lived all alone. But one day, the true condition of your heart will be found out. Maybe before men, but you can be most assured that someday it will be found out before God. So this is a warning to us. This is a caution that we need to be very cautious in how we respond to the truth of God's word. The truth will ultimately 
illuminate, and expose. So the truth of the gospel is to be used. The truth will illuminate and expose. And then finally, the truth will divide and separate. Divide and separate. In verse 18, Jesus says, So take care how you listen, for whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. So once again, Jesus is putting a premium on being a good listener, just as he did back in verse 15. He's exhorting his disciples and us to take care how we listen. And if we don't make good use of what we've been given, what you think you have is going to be taken away from you altogether. To illustrate that point, he draws a contrast between those who have and those who have not. Now, the haves in this case are not those who have everything they want in this world. It's not talking about material prosperity, but it's talking about those who have heard the word of God with an honest and good heart and those who have put the light of the gospel to use and and that it will be given more and more understanding of God's truth. The rich soil of your heart will produce more and more of an abundance for him and more and more of a trust for his promises. And it will be a more and more confidence in sharing God's word with others. You will continue to keep growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You will be abounding in every good work, attaining all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father. You will receive grace upon grace and blessing upon blessing. But what about those who have not? They think they have the truth and they claim to be Christians and occasionally see church as kind of an activity that they do to maybe appease mom or dad. But sadly, they're not living the gospel. They may have some spiritual knowledge, but they possess little in terms of finding any comfort or any solace or any joy in Jesus Christ. Their self-righteous works, their trust in their own personal performance and church attendance will give them absolutely nothing to stand upon when they come and stand before a holy and just God. And Jesus tells them in our text that what they think they have will be taken away from them. So in a phrase, what Jesus is saying to us this morning is, you either use it or you lose it. It's sort of like learning a foreign language in high school, right? How many of you can speak fluently the language you learned in high school? Not many of us, right? If you have someone to try or to converse with you while you're studying it, you can learn it, right? Your skills and abilities in command of that language becomes more and more fluent. But as soon as you get out of school and you have little to no opportunity to practice it, it starts to fade from your memory. And eventually... It does no good to you, and it does no good to anyone else. Our spiritual knowledge and our grasp of the truth is the same way. If we don't take what we hear from Jesus Christ, and we take and put that into practice, eventually it won't be of any use to us, and it won't be of any use to anyone else. So this is a stern warning for us this morning in these three verses. These are words of caution and that we need to listen very carefully. 
Can you look at your life this morning and can you see spiritual fruit? Are you seeing more and more love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control manifested in your daily life? Is your inner man being constantly renewed and encouraged by the truth of the gospel? Are you looking solely unto Jesus and trusting in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins and for the hope of eternal life alone? In what ways, when people look at your life, are they seeing you live out the gospel that you claim to believe in? John 15, 8 says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The question is, are you bearing fruit this morning and thus proving to truly being a disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the rich truths that are found in your word. Lord, we pray that as we hear your word, that we will not just take and hide it under a basket or a, or a bed, Lord, but we will take and apply it, and that we will take the gospel forth from here and proclaim it. Help us to be ready to give an account for the hope that is within us. Help us to live lives that reflect your glory. Help us to magnify the name of Christ as we go into the workplace, as we go to school, and we go through our week. Lord, we thank you for your words to us. Help us to live them out. Give us the strength to do so, Lord. And we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.